Greetings, brothers and sisters. Uh, we're coming almost to the end of the month of April. It's been uh, quite a long time since we've been able to gather together and see each other face to face. Hopefully, uh, we will be returning to uh, that environment uh, soon. But in the meantime, we still hold on to God's word and we hold on to each other, even though we're at a distance. Uh, and even though we're just engaging with each other virtually, uh, more or less, uh, over the phone right now, uh, our God is still in control of all of this. He's in control of the timing of uh, this virus, the timing of its uh, end, and the timing of our own government's uh, decisions. And we want to reflect on that a little bit today as we look at this passage from James chapter 4. Uh, we wrestle with and need to think very carefully about God's sovereignty especially in a time like this when so much seems out of control. Uh, and it certainly is out of our control. Isn't it? And that leaves us sometimes with a feeling of helplessness. But we should have great hope because we know and we are connected to the one who is really in control. So let's pray to that one, uh, the God who sits on the throne of the universe, and let's ask him for his help as we open his word together today. Father, thank you for your care for us in the midst of our own struggles, difficulties, trials, temptations. You are with us through them all. We thank you that you are ruling over all that we see going on in our world. You are ruling over uh, the wrestlings of our own hearts even. Father, we thank you that you have access to the innermost places of our being. And we thank you that you're at work for good in us and around us. And so we pray that you give us eyes to see the good work that you're doing in the midst of uh, the hardship and the suffering that we feel and that we are experiencing even still. Uh, grant us grace as we open your word. Help us to come to grips with who you are as the great king and help us to respond accordingly. Help us to live our lives confidently, trustingly under your good gracious sovereignty. In the name of our great King Jesus that we pray. Amen. We are all living in a profound illustration of the warning aspect of James chapter 4 verses 13 to 17. How many of your plans have had to be canceled, postponed, rescheduled in the past couple of months? Three months ago, would any of us have predicted that we'd be dealing with governmental stay-at-home orders? In February, would the Bakers, the Edgecombs, Tracy Glass, Helen McKnight have predicted hospital stays, pain, sickness, weakness as a result of contracting a contagious disease? Could the go-downs have anticipated having to cancel a planned family party and then having to watch Ron's mom experience the scourge of COVID-19 in our own body. We are confirming the truth of scripture in these days. Proverbs 27.1 says it most concisely, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. This truth puts all of our planning in its proper place, doesn't it? Planning is good and wise and right. One five says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. But the success of our planning, the actual doing of what we plan to do, is not determined by the wisdom or nobility of our plan. It is not determined by our abilities or cleverness or resources. It's not even determined by the good intentions of our heart. Only reason any of our plans actually succeed is because God wills it, because of God's plan. Proverbs makes this clear also repeatedly. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21 likewise says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man but it is the purpose of Yahweh that will stand. What is needed is humility in our planning, a humility that acknowledges the supremacy and the certainty of God's plans over and above our own. In the midst of a trial, 
like the one we're facing now. We might wish and even try to act like life should go on as it used to. We might try to make plans that ignore the reality of the trial or to dodge its impact on our lives. James is going to indict us for arrogance in our planning. There's a certain flavor of arrogance that is brought out of us when pressure comes, when conflict comes, and when suffering comes. I suppose some of it is driven by the desire for self-protection, a desire to ensure the maintenance of our individual rights, as though that were the most important thing in the world. Who of us does not suffer from this dreaded disease? Arrogance. We are overconfident in our planning, too sure of ourselves, our resources, our abilities, too cocky that our opinions are right and our plan is right and good. What's the remedy for this pride, this arrogance that James condemns? Remembering and living under God's sovereignty. When God's sovereignty is minimized, ignored, or rejected altogether, our arrogance comes out in all kinds of ways. When people are exalting themselves in arrogance, inevitably, they begin to look down on others and treat them with disdain and disrespect. But God's sovereignty is active rule over everything that happens in the world and in your life is the good news we need. In fact, the Bible connects the truth of God's sovereignty with the gospel message. The word gospel means good news, and it is an Old Testament word. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah speaks of preachers, messengers who announce the good news, the gospel, and the content of the gospel. The headline of the good news is telling people your God reigns. This is the conclusion of the story of the gospel centered on the person and work of Jesus. He is the king who ascends to sit on his sovereign throne. The pathway to his exaltation as sovereign king was through his perfect life of obedience, his sacrificial death for sinners on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead as the first fruits of the new creation. But God's sovereignty more generally was never waiting for Jesus to finish his work. God has always been exercising his sovereignty over this world. But the ultimate expression of that sovereignty, the full and proper manifestation of his rule over this world, is the God-man, Jesus Christ, sitting on the throne of the universe. That was God's plan all along. The reality of God's sovereignty is sometimes argued about, but the Bible wants us to marvel at it, submit to it, and enjoy living in light of it. And that's how James will deal with our arrogance in this passage. In the previous paragraph, James has just called people to repentance and especially to humble ourselves before the Lord. What does this submission, this humility look like? Join me in reading James 4, 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, as we look at the arrogant claim, as we begin exploring the passage, I want to hold verses 13 and verse 16 together. 
verse 13, describes the characteristic behavior of the folks he's addressing, the way they think and the way they talk. And then verse 16 gives James his condemnation of their behavior as arrogant, which he further describes as evil boasting. James is again drawing attention to the problem of our words, what we say. What kinds of things do we say when we make our plans? James may be targeting a particular group in his audience, business owners, those who might make a business plan about making profit and about conducting themselves out in the world. So in verse 13, he begins by characterizing their thought processes as uh, he and he starts with this phrase, come now. And you've got to hear a little bit of talking down to them here. He's in a bit of disbelief that people in the church would think like this or talk like this. This is the only place in the New Testament where this come now appears, except also in James in just a few verses in James chapter five, verse one, which we'll look at next week. James is in disbelief that his audience could be so presumptuous in the way that they make their plans. Now, even though James may have business people, especially in his mind, I think it's pretty clear that this kind of thinking and speaking can characterize all of our everyday lives to one degree or another. Whether you're a business owner or not, we all have a tendency to think and even talk the way that verse 13 describes. Look at the claim in verse 13 again. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Think about your own daily conversation. If you didn't know that this was a part of scripture, and if you didn't know where James was going with this, and you just heard somebody say that, would you think anything was wrong with it? Would you think anything bad about it? Don't you say the same kinds of things in your daily planning? So what's the deal here? What is James highlighting? Let me draw out three things that I see that James wants to draw our attention to here. First, it seems to assert a confidence, a certainty about the future, about what's going to happen. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. Now, he's not quoting anybody in particular. He's generalizing. So somebody might say, today we're going to pack up and we're going to go to Rochester. Tomorrow, we're going to pack our things and we're going to move to a different place. We will go and we will spend a year there. Pretty confident that we're going to stay there a whole year, no longer and no shorter. We will stay there a year and we will trade. We will make a profit. We'll set up shop. We'll do business. We will make a profit. That statement seems to exude a certainty about what's actually going to happen and unfold in the future. And James sees this as an expression of arrogance that we know, we know what's going to happen. And I wonder how much when we talk about the future, when we dream about the future, when we plan about the future, how much certainty do we express with our words? Think about it. The way that you talk about the plans that you're going to make, even on a mundane basis. You think you may be going to the grocery store this afternoon, but will you? You may plan to, you may intend to, you may even exert effort to do so, but it never seems to cross your mind that it might not actually happen. It never seems to cross your mind that you might fail to get where you want to go, or the grocery store may not be open. On at least one occasion that I recall back in Texas, my wife and I got in the car on a Sunday afternoon to drive to the next town over to get some ice cream from Chick-fil-A. We can seem to be pretty certain about what's going to actually unfold, and we don't have an allowance in our thinking that something else may happen. Something may interrupt our plans. I know what this is like on a larger scale than dashed hopes for excellent ice cream, when I was about to graduate from high school, like most of my peers, I was planning where to go to college. To make an incredibly long story short, I applied to one school, was accepted, and received scholarship that covered all of my costs, the full ride. I packed all my possessions into my 1993 Mercury Topaz, 
and drove three and a half hours to the campus, unpacked all my possessions into my dorm room, and then began to engage in orientation activities that evening. All the indications I could measure were telling me I was doing the right thing. I could perceive God's leading in all of this. My pastor thought it was a good idea, good school. My church was enthusiastically supportive. I'd received all of these scholarships. Surely this was God's will. That night, as I observed my peers and listened to their conversations, I felt an overwhelming sense that I could not stay there any longer. So as the sun rose the next morning, I packed all my possessions back into my car and returned home to the great surprise and disappointment of my family. What unfolded after that decision included a ton of heartache, family strife, student loans to the extreme, and most importantly, a wrestling with God about whether I had missed his perfect will for my life. Did I screw up God's will for my life? For about three years, I lived under the burden of that question and the guilt and the sense of failure that accompanies it. Finally, through study of scripture, I came to understand and embrace the good news of God's sovereignty, which includes, as an application point of that, that no, I had not, indeed cannot, screw up God's will for my life. And neither can you. More on that later. But the point here is that it is an expression of our arrogance to think that we can or have messed up God's will. Just as it is an expression of our arrogance when we make our plans without recognizing that God may very well override our plans, interfere with them, or radically transform the fulfillment of our plans. He has the right and the power, but he also has the wisdom and the goodness. He knows what's best for us better than we ever will. A second thing I see in this statement that James is making is a self-exaltation of our will. Note the future tense statements here. We will go into such and such a town. We will spend a year there. We will trade. We will make a profit. Just asserting myself. That's And it's assuming that I can do what I set out to do. It's assuming that I have the ability to do what I want to do. It assumes that I can do whatever I put my mind to. And isn't that what we tell our children? We encourage them by saying, you can do whatever you put your mind to. You can do whatever you want. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to say to our children, but there's something more important that we need to balance that statement with that James is going to help us with here in this passage. We need to teach our children and encourage them that, yes, they can do it. But if they succeed in what they set out to do, it's not ultimately because of their ability. And they need to know that. And so do we as grown-ups. We need to remember that when we make our planning about the future, it is not ultimately up to me, my power, my ability, my resources that I might succeed. The third thing I notice is what's missing here. And what that's what James really wants to highlight, I think. What's missing? There's no consideration of God, of God's will or God's involvement in this statement. The statement itself doesn't seem to take into account that God might not allow you to go to such and such a place. You might plan to go to Rochester. You might put forth the effort. You might even get in your car to go. But it's God who determines if you actually get there. And this thinking, this mindset, doesn't take account of the possibility that God might have different things in store for you. It doesn't take into account God's plan. And it doesn't take into account God's involvement. It seems to assume that God's just taken his hands off the wheel of our lives. And we're just running free unless... 
we get too far out of bounds, and then he might jump in to grab us and put us back straight. But the statement itself just assumes that I'm an autonomous individual set distinct from God, and I can do whatever I want. My plans will succeed no matter what. So what's the corrective here? How does James tell us to think differently? Verse 14 gives us a twofold corrective. He says that we need to remember our, arrog our, our arrogance and our insignificance. Remember your arrogance and insignificance. Look at verse 14 again. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So first, he reminds us that we need to remember our ignorance of the future. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's a truth. That is always true. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. No matter how savvy you are at predicting things or how skilled you are at planning, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Period. You don't know. And it's important when we make our planning about the future, that we acknowledge that reality, that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I shouldn't assume or take for granted that tomorrow is going to be just like today. I need to be humble in my thoughts about God and about what's going to happen in the future because I don't know what he has planned. God has not revealed to us what will happen tomorrow. And he won't. We shouldn't expect him to. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. And that, that's the truth of the normal Christian life. God doesn't want us to know what tomorrow will bring. He wants us to trust him for tomorrow. But he doesn't want us to know what tomorrow will bring. He simply wants us to trust him and be obedient now and in our planning for the future. Talk more about that in just a minute. So I need to acknowledge my ignorance about the future. I need to acknowledge that I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that responds very clearly to the statement in verse 13. We will spend a year there. So these business people are saying we're going to spend a year somewhere. And James is saying you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. How can you be planning for next year? How can you be so confident about what's going to happen a year down the road? You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. A fundamental aspect of humility is admitting your own ignorance. The second thing he wants us to remember is our insignificance. He compares us to myths. He says, what is your life? What is your life? So he's characterizing your whole life here. He says, what is it? It's mist. It's vapor. It's the kind of thing you see when you walk out on a cold morning and you exhale and there's just the breath that's gone in a moment. It's insignificant. It appears and then it disappears just as quickly as it came up. It's gone or it's like fog. Fog fascinates me as you drive into it or walk into it. You, you see it out in front of you. And you can't see very far, but it's like as you go forward, you can still see. You, it's, it's like the fog disappears as you enter into it, but it, 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 but then you look back, you turn around, and it's still there. But as you pass through it, it has no impact on you. Fog is something you can't even feel. A mist is something that is insignificant. I think James is not just saying it appears and then it disappears really quickly, but it also doesn't change anything. It doesn't have the power to make a difference. It's not like the wind that actually moved trees. Fog's just there. Mist is just there. It doesn't really do anything. And I think James is here responding to the assumed ability of the statement in verse 13. We assume we can do whatever we want to do. We assume that we can make an impact on the world. We assume that we can change things by our great skill. And our great effort, James wants us to pull back on our confidence about what we can actually accomplish by ourselves or even together as people. 
in our own strengths. That's not where our confidence needs to be in our abilities. We are just mist, just a vapor, very insignificant. So if we remember those two things, our ignorance and our insignificance, that corrects us and brings us down, humbles us to our proper place. But what should we be saying instead? What should be the kind of attitude that characterizes our planning instead? Verse 15 has often been summarized by the Latin phrase, Deo volente, which simply means God willing. Many writers in earlier days, when they would write letters that would include plans, maybe to visit someone, would add the initials DV to represent this phrase, Deo volente, God willing. Look again at verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. And do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I'm sure you recognize that James doesn't intend for us to go around and every time we make some plan or some statement about the future to tack on the phrase, if the Lord wills. Now, sometimes it is a good idea to actually say it out loud. Because if you think about it, especially if non-believers are around or even immature believers, if you're making your plans and you're talking out loud about what you're going to do and you never say something like that, the people around you are going to assume that you just make your plans like everybody else does without consideration of God and his will. So it is a good idea to actually say it at least sometimes. We have at least a few occasions in the New Testament where Paul said it. In a couple of his letters and in the book of Acts, we see that he said out loud, if the Lord wills, or on paper, if the Lord wills, I will come to see you, or I will go to such and such a place. Paul actually said it or wrote it, and it's a good idea to say it at least every once in a while. But see what exactly he said here. This is where it broadens out much more than just business plans. He says that we should say, if the Lord wills, we will live. We will live. Do you see what he's saying? Ultimately, it is up to God whether you take another breath today. It is ultimately up to God's will if you live another moment. Your life is in his hands, and you need to acknowledge that. That really should push us to a deep humility. When we know that it's really up to God if I take another breath, I can't take life and living for granted. It's determined, finally, by God if we live another moment. And also, if we do this or that. You see, he could have said, if the Lord wills, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, to match exactly the previous quote back in verse 13. He could have just corrected the phrase like that. But instead, he goes bigger and also smaller. We should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This or that small thing, the little things of our lives. We should recognize and acknowledge that God is the one who determines what actually happens in our lives. Moment by moment, day by day, the small and the large. God is the one who determines, not us. And so again, he doesn't intend for us to say this all the time. We'd, we'd have to add it to almost everything that we say if he intended that, but we don't and we shouldn't. But the point is that this awareness should uh, characterize our thinking. It should shape our thinking about the future. We should have a constant awareness and a conscious awareness. This is something that we should actually remind ourselves of, that God is the one who determines what actually happens. God is the one who determines if we live or do this or that. I want to talk more about that little phrase, if the Lord wills. But first, let me talk about how this claim corrects the previous one in verse 13. Whereas the claim in verse 13 expresses a certainty about the future, I have certainty about the future, I will do this, I will do that. 
This claim admits that all the future is entirely in God's hands. The future is entirely in God's hands. And we can see lots of scripture that supports that reality. I've already quoted Proverbs 19, 21. Another example is Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. No human being can say that rightfully and truthfully. Even as we seek to make plans, we need to have this awareness that what actually unfolds will be according to God's purpose, according to his counsel, according to his plan. Secondly, in response to the arrogant person's confidence in his own ability, this statement in verse 15 focuses on God's ability. God has the ability to carry out his will. Always. Psalm 135, 6, and I could point to other scriptures, but Psalm 135, 6 summarizes it very well. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. This is a very important principle for us to understand, a very important truth to get into our souls and to influence our life on a day-by-day basis. Because I think very often when we fall into the trap of thinking when things are not going well in our lives, I must be somehow blocking what God wants for me. My sin, my disobedience, my unbelief somehow hinders God from accomplishing his purposes in my life. Folks, this verse, Psalm 135, 6, and a host of others that I could point to in the scriptures teaches us that God cannot be stopped. No one can resist his will. No one can stay his hand. When God wants to do something in your life, you cannot stop him. You cannot hinder God. Now, The scriptures do speak of people resisting God, resisting the Holy Spirit specifically. And I know for a fact that every person listening to this has resisted the Holy Spirit at one time or another in his or her life. But let me ask you, why did you stop resisting the Holy Spirit? Wasn't it because the Spirit overcame your resistance, ultimately? I think that's true. We don't have the ability to stand in God's way or to block his purposes. That's really good news, folks, because I can look at back in my own life and see times where I made stupid decisions or I sinned horribly. And I could think and I have thought, well, I've messed up God's will. I've tripped him up. He can't do what he wants to do in my life because I'm an idiot. That is not True. The Bible's really clear on this point. I cannot trip him up. That's really good news, folks. It's really good news for me personally because I have done some dumb things in my life. I have failed royally. And God was accomplishing his purposes all through it. I didn't trip him up. I didn't slow him down. I didn't pull him back. I didn't get in his way. I didn't pull his hand back. I can't do that. I'm not strong enough to do that, and neither are you. So what exactly does James mean by this phrase, if the Lord wills? I suggest to you that we could paraphrase or restate James's idea like this. If the Lord has planned, if the Lord has planned it, We will live and do this or that. If the Lord has planned it, we will live and do this or that. Most of the time in the Bible, most of the time, when you read the phrase, the will of God, or God's will, or his will, referring to God, it's referring to his plan. God has a plan. That is something that is fixed, unchangeable, and something that he decided on before creation. It's a plan for all eternity. 
And I want to talk about that plan for just a few minutes here. I've got four points that I want you to know about God's plan under the heading of God's plan governs your life now and forever. God's plan governs your life now and forever. And it's God's plan that governs your life. So if God wills, if the Lord wills, means if God has planned it. Here are four things to know about God's plan that I think are very important. Number one, God's plan is not all revealed to us. God's plan is not all revealed to us. Some of it is, but all of it is not. And particularly what is not is what's going to happen in your life tomorrow or even today. What's going to happen in your day-to-day decision-making? God doesn't reveal that to us. He's never promised to reveal it to us. Deuteronomy 29, 29 gives us this picture. Moses says, the secret things belong to Yahweh, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So there are things that are secret that God has never told us that he will tell us. He keeps those things to himself. And we don't need to know them or he would have told them to us. So often we get tripped up in our decision making because we want God to tell us what to do. We want God to show us what comes next. But he's never told us that he would ever do that for us. He's never promised to give us that. These are a part of the secret things, the secret parts of God's plan that he's never promised to show us. He's never promised to pull back the curtain beyond what he has already done in the scriptures. You see, when Moses says the things that are revealed, he's talking about the scriptures. And for Moses, that meant four books at the time. And the unfolding of the fifth book that Deuteronomy 29.29 is a part of. We have this great book, much more than Moses had, that is the revelation of God. That's, these are the revealed things. This is where we find the revealed things, and these are the things that should guide our lives and our decision-making, more so than needing to know what comes next, God. Show me what I must do. He hasn't told us that he would show us that. He wants us to make a wise decision on things like where to live and where to work and who to marry, I think. So the first thing to know about God's plan is that you don't know all of it, and that's a good thing. Secondly, God's plan includes everything that actually happens. I get this primarily from Ephesians 1.11, but there are other places. God is described in Ephesians 1.11 as the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. And I don't think in the context of Ephesians 1 that there's any reason to limit the all things. God is working, and it's a present tense here, God is actively working all things according to the counsel of his will. That is, according to the counsel of his plan, what he's already decided before the foundation of the world. He works all things. Now, that can be a very difficult word for some of you. Because I know that for many of you, and for me as well, we have experienced terrible things. Abuse, loss, sickness, all things. I don't want all of those things, abuse, loss, sickness, pain, suffering, to be too closely connected to God in my thinking. And some of you have been the victims of horrible things. And I have been the victim of horrible things in my past. I've also been the perpetrator of horrible things. And I can say with full confidence, based on this scripture and the rest of the Bible, God had his hand on those things. And God was present in those things. And even those things were included in God's plan. Now that can be difficult to wrestle with. And if you're struggling to figure out how that works and how that need, how that can be so helpful for you, I'd love 
about that. I've spent years wrestling with it in my own life and my own experiences, the things that have happened to me and the things that I've done. But I'm fully confident that it's true. If God was not involved in those terrible things, if he was not overseeing them, they would have been far worse. If those terrible things were not a part of his plan, I can have no confidence that God could do anything good through them. If God was distant in my worst suffering or in the suffering that I have caused by my sin, then how could he bring comfort? How could he redeem? How could he bring good out of those things? But if I know that God was actually there, God was actually involved, God actually had his hands on it as it unfolded, then I know without a shadow of a doubt that God can mold it and use it and turn it for good, which the Bible tells me is actually what he does. Not just that he can, but that's exactly what he does. God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when James says, if the Lord wills, I think he means if the Lord has planned it. And he's talking about what actually unfolds in your life. Thirdly, and kind of as a subset of the previous, God's plan is specific about our lives. God's plan is specific about your life. Psalm 139.16 teaches us this. If you remember Psalm 139, it's the kind of famous and well-known because David sings about how God worked in conception, informing him in his mother's womb. And he says this along the way, Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now you could say, well, that just means that God decided when I would be born or, or really when I would be conceived and when I would die and all the rest of it is left kind of up in the air or something like that. But I think it says much more. Than that. You see, God has a book, a story, a grand story, and your life is a, a mini story inside that grand story, a chapter in that grand story. The story of your life is caught up in God's story. And guess what? It's already been written. Your story has been written. Every part of it. The story of your life has already been written. But unlike the books you might pick up off the shelf and read, you can't skip ahead to see what happens next. Bill Baker could never have known ahead of time, that there would be a chapter in his story entitled, When Bill Contracted COVID-19. God has already written the story of what happens in your life tomorrow. But we only get to experience the story as it unfolds, one page at a time. Not only are you not the author of your own story, you're also not an editor of your story. You can't send the story of your life back to the divine author and ask him to make some revisions. Instead, as we live out the story that he's already written, our responsibility is to seek the author's intent and to trust the goodness of his storytelling ability. And that leads to the fourth point about God's plan. God's plan is good for us. God's plan is good for us. I've already alluded to Romans 8, 28, but let me remind you of just what it says. Romans 8, 28. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. There's that all things again. All things. The good, the bad, and the ugly. God works them all together for our good. I'll give you another verse on that. It's everyone's favorite coffee cup verse or graduation card verse. Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But would you read it when you read it in a graduation card or on a coffee cup? I wonder if you remember the context. Jeremiah 29 is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah written to the Jewish people living in Babylon, in exile, living under the judgment of God. In the verse right before this, so Jeremiah 29, 10, Jeremiah reminds these people that they were going to remain in exile for 70 years before he would bring them back to the land of Israel. So God's plans for welfare and plans to give you a future and a hope included remaining in Babylon for 70 years. Most of the people Jeremiah was addressing would die in Babylon, never again seeing Jerusalem, never experiencing in their lifetime the plans for welfare that God had promised and planned. Six verses later, in the same letter, Jeremiah refers to some of their relatives who had managed to stay in Jerusalem. What kind of plans does God have for them? Look at Jeremiah 29, 17. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, Behold, I am sending on those living in Jerusalem sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. That doesn't sound very good. When we get a graduation card and we read Jeremiah 29, 11, aren't we all thinking that God, what God's got planned for us these good plans include getting to go to a good college, and graduating, and getting a good job, and having a happy marriage, and lots of kids. We don't consider that God might have plans for us to suffer. We don't consider that it might be God's plans for us to experience loss. We don't consider that it might be God's plans for us to experience failure, to try really hard and to come up short. No one wants to think about those things. I don't want this to be a downer in any way, but it's really helpful if we have that possibility in mind ahead of time. Because when it comes, if we don't have the thought in our minds that God has the right to do what he wants with my life, and that good might look very different than I might think when it comes, when the hard comes, when the loss comes, when the failure comes, we have a tendency to rail against God, rage against him and against other people, and to break under the pressure. Let me say something to some of you younger folks, some of you single folks in particular. When you think about marriage in the future, really consider including the traditional vows in some fashion. I'm thinking of John and McKenna right now. Primarily, I've got your faces in my mind. It's really important that you promise to love one another for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, in health and in sickness. Because when poorer comes, when sickness comes, when worse comes, it's really helpful to be able to go back and say, I promise to love this person in this season. I've had to do that in my marriage, and I can't tell you how helpful it's been. So if you're going to write your own vows, fantastic. But think about those things and consider those traditional promises, because when life gets hard, sometimes you really need to hold on to something that happened earlier. You really need to hold on to the commitment that you made, the commitment to love your spouse in this moment. It's really helpful to say, I promised to do that before God and everybody, and so I will. So having a humility about the future and about what God's going to do with my life is really important as we make our plans and as we think about the future. We need to allow God to define what good might look like for us and to have confidence as we go through loss, as we go through pain, that God knows what he's doing and that he really is working good in our lives. So what's the path forward? How do we live in the midst of it? Verse 17 is Sometimes difficult to see how it's connected to what he just said, what just went before. 
But the path forward is basically the idea of obedience to God's revealed will. Obedience to God's revealed will. This verse, verse 17, is usually kind of disconnected from its context when we quote it, as though it were kind of a proverb just floating loosely about. But the first word is so, therefore. So at least James thinks that it's connected. So it behooves us to figure out, well, what's the connection here? How does it work? Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So in this context, what is the right thing to do that we could fail to do? It seems to me that James is saying, if you business people that I'm talking about and talking to and thinking about, if you know that God's plan really governs your life, and you know that you ought to be taking that into account as you think about the future and as you make your plans, and you don't do that. It's not just ignoring something. It's not just this little mistake that you're making. It's sin for you to think this way. For you to have an attitude about your life that attempts to keep God on the fringes. That's not just a little mistake. That is but then I think, well, how then do we know the right thing to do? And I go back to the revealed will of God. We know the right thing to do because God defines it for us in the scriptures. So if God has told us to do something in the Bible, in his word, and we ignore it, set it to the side, dodge it, try to get around its implications, we are sinning. How do you know the right thing to do? Well, you see what's in the Bible. I don't think James is addressing a situation like Tamara and I faced a few years ago. We were looking to buy our first home back in Texas. We had made an offer and we were working out the details of the purchase. James is not saying into that kind of situation, God wants you to buy this house that you're trying to buy. If you decide to back out and not buy it, which we had already done with a different then we would be sinning. We would have been sinning in that decision. I don't think that's what James is talking about at all. God had planned for us to live in that house, but the only way I can say that now, that that's what his plan was, is because we bought it and lived there for two years. That's the only way you can know what God's will is. is in hindsight, looking back, after the fact, that's the only way you can know for certain the plan of God, the unrevealed secret things of the Lord. The only thing you can know, what did God, what is God's plan for my life? The only thing you, the only way you can know that for certain is by looking back and you can say with certainty that whatever unfolded in your life was a part of God's plan for your life. But when you start looking to the future, you start thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or down the road, and you try to say and try to seek out what God's plan is for there, you have no basis to do that. You have no evidence to go on, and you have no reason or instruction in the scriptures that you should even think that way. Oftentimes we might advise another Christian, if you feel like, the Spirit is leading you to do something, to buy this house, to marry this woman, then do it. But I want you to evaluate that statement very carefully. It starts with the words, if you feel like. And I think at the end of the day, we're really basing our decision on our feeling and not so much on the bigger picture of what God might be doing. Now, we should take our feelings into account when we make decisions. They're not wrong, evil, or bad all the time, just sometimes. And the Spirit uses the inner workings of our mind and heart. So I'm not discounting any of those things, but we need to be very careful about making that the decisive factor. My wife probably gets tired of me saying it, but anytime you start a sentence with, I feel like, usually respond, the next thing you say is probably wrong. Because our feelings are influenced by so many different things. And if I'm basing my assessment of what God wants me to do or what God is doing in the midst of a situation 
based on my feeling, then I'm probably in trouble. We should focus more on what the Bible says and let that govern. Well, as we close, I want to talk about the genuine freedom of living under God's sovereignty. It's true that the Bible doesn't tell us which house to buy, which woman to marry, which job to take, which college to attend. It doesn't tell us those things specifically, but it does tell us how to manage our finances and how to handle our resources that God's given to us. It does tell us those things. It does tell us how to work responsibly and to respect authorities. And so it does tell us a lot of things that we should be doing as we work and as we buy houses and as we make all those kinds of decisions, as we relate in relationships. It has a plethora of things to tell us about how to do those things. But there's so much freedom that God gives to us, the freedom to make choices about what house to buy, whom to marry, and all the rest. And that's what this is really all about at the end of the day. Living like this and planning like this with an awareness that God's plan is actually what's determinative. It sets me free. It sets me free so that I don't fear or worry that I'm going to somehow miss God's best for me. Folks, you can't. When you're thinking about what God has planned for you, you can't miss it. It's impossible. Stop worrying about that. Let the pressure ease off your shoulders. If you're afraid that if I, if I make this choice, I'm going to miss out on God's best for me. Folks, that's not true. I know you've probably heard it before, but I tell you, search the scriptures for yourself. You won't find it. Take the pressure off. Enjoy the freedom that God gives you and knowing that God is absolutely sovereign over the details of your life. You might think, how does that make me free? But it does. It's the only way to be free because it's the truth. It's the truth. It's living in light of reality. It's the freedom of living under God's sovereignty that gives us great confidence to act and not to get bound up in fear that we're going to make the wrong decision. Let me quote a writer that I found helpful here at the end. He's actually talking about a highly relevant situation for us. Someone is sick in your family and you've prayed for them to be healed and they don't get better or they die. So he's actually talking about that situation. And when we talk about God's sovereignty, the question often comes up, if God is sovereign, why should we pray? God's planned it all out. What's the point of praying? So that's, what this author Spiros Zodiades is saying uh, in this quote, he says, if God does not will a thing, neither medicine nor prayer will accomplish the results which we want. His results will come to pass. Here's the point I want you to take home from this quotation. He goes on and says, happy is the man who is satisfied with the fulfillment of God's wishes rather than I could look back on my life at several points and the decisions that I've made about the things that have happened in my life, and I could bury myself in remorse and guilt and regret. But knowing that what has happened in the past has happened according to plan, removes all of that from me. And when you look at your past and the things that have happened to you or the things that you have done, you find yourself ashamed. You find yourself grieving. This truth is critical in the path to genuine healing. God does not want us to ignore the pain that we cause others or that we have been caused. He wants us to feel it to the full. And to experience his comfort in the midst of the pain. And a key piece of that is to acknowledge and to see that God had planned it for my good. And that might take a long time and a lot of processing. It has for me in my own life. But it's the truth. 
bring healing. And I want that for you. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a difficult time of trial and pressure and loss. We need a deep confidence in the gospel of God's sovereignty. The good news that God is reigning right now. Jesus has not abdicated his throne. Coronavirus is not sovereign, though its name refers to a crown. Let that remind us of the irony that it's not the virus that is in any way sovereign. It's not even our own government that is actually sovereign over our lives, whether it misuses its authority or not. Jesus is the one ruling over that. Jesus is ruling even in the midst of sinful people doing sinful things. And Jesus is ruling even in a time where suffering is high. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their health. People are losing their lives. Jesus still sits on his throne and reigns over every bit of it. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your care for us, your power over death and suffering. We thank you for your rule in our lives and in this world. And we pray that you would help us to experience it to the full and to rejoice and trust our sovereign king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.